You know, I, I find one of the most astonishing, yet most delightful of realities that is presented in Scripture is the truth that God dwells with His people. Have you, have you not enjoyed just seeing different aspects of that as we've gone through this series? Uh, just to see how God showed Himself and how He dwelt with us throughout human history. Just think with me for a moment how we've seen this throughout our journey through the story. Uh, in the beginning, God created man to be in a relationship with the Creator. And this was uh, vividly demonstrated in the garden where God daily walked with Adam and Eve. Can you just imagine that for a moment, what that would be like? The coolness of the morning, just taking a walk with God every morning, in person. Just picture that scene for a moment. Doesn't that just delight you? A few thousand years later, the Lord again showed his desire, as he had done many times throughout, but he showed it specifically, his desire to be with his people, when he gave them instructions in one of those really exciting passages of Scripture that goes on for several chapters, and it's a building plan. Remember those passages in Exodus? And you're reading through this going, okay, so there's that kind of material, and there's that kind of sheepskin, and there's that kind of dye, and these many dimensions, and this many cubits. It's one of those really exciting passages. Uh, right? You remember reading through that part of Exodus and you're thinking, what is happening here? But then as you start to realize that what God is doing is he's saying, look, we're going to have a tent where I am going to camp in your midst. And, and those, those chapters are incredibly exciting because what's happening is God says, I'm going to come dwell among you in a, a very tangible way. Later on, after the people come to the promised land, King Solomon builds a, a temple where God's presence came to dwell and was there for several hundred years in a tangible way that people could see God came to dwell and his glory came to rest on that tent his glory later came to rest on that on that temple in the the holy of holies can you can you just picture it as that glory in a very tangible cloud came and, and moved in their midst and said I'm with you I'm going to dwell here, right in the middle of all of you. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see God's glory descend on, on that tent? Can you imagine Moses going in and visiting with their God in the temple as, as one, in the tabernacle as one visits face to face with a friend? And his face, he had to cover it because his face came out glowing with radiance. Then there's Joshua. He's about to lead the people into the land and and Yahweh declares to him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What kind of conversation was that? We're not told the details of it. You know, was this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Uh, we're just told that God said to Joshua, but what a promise. You know, that, Joshua, you've watched over these last 40 years how I've been with Moses, and I'm going to be with you in the same way. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. What an experience. Finally, after uh, we arrived at the New Testament, after thousands of years of, of pointing people to this pivotal moment in human history where everything in the past and everything in the future hinges upon this time in which the Son of Man came and dwelt among us. 
in the most real, most literal way that you can possibly imagine, God came to dwell among his people, but this time he actually took on flesh. He became one of us. And again, he, he walked with us. He stayed with us. He slept in people's homes. He ate at their tables. He, he dined with them. He met with them. He healed them. Can you just, just picture it? Can you imagine what it must have been like to be around Jesus? Listen to him teach. Watch the miracles. Eat a meal with him. It's astonishing. It's delightful. It's profound to consider that the God of the universe who is, is beyond us in his holiness and who transcends our ability to comprehend his greatness because he is so mighty, it's this profound truth that he in some way has made himself known and, and he has dwelt among us and revealed himself so that we might have a relationship with him. It's such, in such amazing ways as we've seen throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels. I hope you've been delighted as you've, as, you've, as you've seen that and as you've read that and as you've considered that in your reading through the Scriptures. And, and so don't you long for the day that Jesus returns? Isn't it going to be glorious? Do you long for the day in which, which we see Him face to face in which we will be with Him? He will rule in our midst? This is our hope. It's one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith that we believe in a personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that we are to live in constant expectation that he is going to come back. This is our blessed hope. But imagine all these different ways in which God has dwelt among men. Does that mean that these revelations that God has made are only something that we can imagine. Only something that we can read about. It's more than that, isn't it? I'd like to take you to a passage in John chapter 13 and 14. There's this discussion that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. There's this tension, I, I think you probably, hopefully you can feel it, where there's this idea of, you know, okay, we, we know that God wants to dwell in our midst, but, but how is that different now in the age of the church than, than throughout all these stories of individual lives that we've been considering? And, and in these tangible ways where he walked in the garden, he, he met with Moses, he, he came and, as a man and dwelt among us. How does that relate to our present position as the church? And there's this beautiful conversation in John chapter 13 and 14. The, the men from our, our men's discipleship group have been, have been considering these two chapters. Uh, I'm just going to let you know I'm, I'm not going to be preaching an expository sermon like we've been talking about through um, uh, our, our, our uh, men's discipleship group on these two chapters. Okay, I'm going to leave that for you guys later on. We're just going to skim through a lot of the, the highlights that we've been covering and then we're going to make our way to Acts here in a few moments. But I'd like to look at some of the things that we've been learning with this group. The, the conversation in these chapters is a dialogue that's taking place and it's, and it's happening around the events of the Last Supper. So, so these are Jesus' last words, so to speak. Before the crucifixion, this is the, the last lesson that he's going to teach them. When, when somebody 
speaks their last words. It's, you can kind of take it as important, right? Is it something that you're going to remember? And so he taught them many things throughout this conversation. Uh, it was a conversation in which he revealed some astounding truths. However, it was a conversation where the disciples seemed to only hear a few portions of what Jesus said. Have you ever had a conversation like that with your spouse? You're talking and, and, and you hear one thing and you latch onto it and you completely ignore everything else. All right. I know men never do this, but our wives, I mean, guys, we're horrible, aren't we? I hear something and I, I guess my brain starts going in one direction. I got this one track mind and, and I miss the 20 other things my wife has said in the next five minutes because I'm thinking about that thing she said five minutes ago. And that's kind of what happens here with the disciples. My wife does a much better job of retaining various parts of the conversation than I am. But um, the disciples were a lot like me that day. Is this conversation where they, they seem to only hear a few portions of what Jesus said and they kind of ignore all the stuff about loving one another and what God's going to do and this talk about the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 13, verse 31, we're told this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Uh, there's, there's a whole verse to unpack in a sermon later on. But they didn't hear that part. They hear this next part. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What? Wait, what did he just say? Now, that's going to be the verse that's resonating in their mind throughout the huge part of the whole rest of this conversation. Jesus then gives a command and speaks in verses 34 and 35. It's a passage that's familiar to us. We go back to it all the time because it's about loving one another and, and how will people know you by your love. And, and it's this beautiful passage that, that you're probably familiar with. But the apostles seem to have just skimmed over that part because they're still thinking in their heads, they're still hearing in that moment what Jesus had just told them, where I am going, you cannot come. And so they're kind of ignoring all this beautiful theology that Jesus is dropping on them in this final conversation and saying, what do you mean we can't come with you? It's this hammer that drops. We've been with you for three years, Jesus. What do you mean we can't come? It's time for the kingdom. It's time for you to dwell in our midst and be our king. And, and so this starts a series of questions that are going to unfold over these two chapters. Peter asks in John chapter 13, verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? Can, can imagine Peter asking that. Where are you going? Jesus replies that he cannot follow now, but he will come later. And he says, I want to go now. Lord, I will, I will lay down my life for you. We know what happens over the next couple days, right? In chapter 14, Jesus again reveals some glorious truths about preparing a place for them and what his father's house is like. Again, the disciples, they seem to only be hearing snippets of the conversation, and, and so they're, they're not asking the important questions. They're asking the, the questions that are coming to the surface from what Jesus is saying. Jesus, understand, is very gracious in answering these questions to them. So Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This, of course, leads us to one of our favorite Bible verses, 
in sharing the gospel, right? Jesus responds and says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus goes on to talk about knowing the Father and the necessity of believing in Jesus, faith in Jesus and what that looks like. But then in verse 12, he issues a promise. The promise, I have to say, is is mind-blowing. It's extraordinary. The promise is of such spectacular nature and is unbelievable except for the fact that Jesus is the one that made the promise. So we know that we can believe it. It's so astounding that when, you, that when we read it, we tend to just read over it and, and we kind of dismiss it as cliche of some kind. Kind of when the disciples were told, I'm going to die and raise from the dead, says they thought he was speaking figuratively. They didn't believe that he was actually going to raise from the dead. And we kind of do the same thing with this verse. We, we read it and go, oh yeah, sure, that's part of the Christian life. We don't think about what he actually says here. We plow right through it. But Jesus says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, and again, we've discussed this before. What does it mean when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you? Yeah, it's going to be on the test. Pay attention. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Did you hear that? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And if that's not enough, he goes on. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Wait, what? Did you see that? Just stop for a minute and think about the ramifications of that. Whoever, first of all, what, what does whoever mean? That's a big, big word, isn't it? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Did you? What? How do you do that? Think about the things that Jesus did throughout his ministry. I mean, he raised the dead. So you have to ask yourself, what, what's Jesus talking about here? Because this is a profound statement. As I'm going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so do you you realize the depth of this promise? And he promised that those who believe will do greater works than these. I've asked myself the question, what, what does that look like? I believe that, that a great part of what that looks like that he describes right here, uh, right afterwards, he, he, he never promises that we're going to be greater than he is, right? Does he say that? You're going to be greater than I am? Okay, that's, that's not the promise. We will do works like his, works that will be greater than his, greater than these. Uh, again, not because we are greater, but because he is going to answer prayer that is in accordance with his will and which glorifies the Father. In a moment, we're going to turn to the next chapter in the story that's displayed in the book of Acts. And Acts is a book that puts on full display the beginning of this, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise here. Peter's actually going to make reference to this chapter here in just a little bit. In, in Acts, we see the good news of God's kingdom it wasn't just announced to the Jews. It didn't just stay within the borders of Israel, but but 
they went beyond where Jesus had ever gone. And the apostles start to fulfill his great commandment, this great commission to go into all the world and share the gospel. That's something that Jesus never tried to do. In fact, when the Gentiles came to him, he said, it's, it's, it's not your time. My mission is to the, the people of Israel. And so, and so the apostles and the early church, they start going beyond the borders of Israel. They go into the, the whole Roman Empire. Uh, what we know of the apostles is by the end of their life, Thomas was, went as far as, as India. Some of the others went down into Africa and all the way up. I think one of them ended up in, in Germany uh, among the Germanic, early Germanic peoples. And so uh, they, they went all over the place and they shared the gospel in places that uh, just it is amazing what, ha- what the Lord did through them. But in Acts, we find that this good news is, is spread far beyond the boundaries that Jesus had ever gone to, to the utmost parts of the earth. And they, they began a commission which we are still playing a part of today. But there's another element of this passage which is critical for the works that Jesus has called us to do, these works that are going to be like his, that are greater than the ones he did. And it's an element that's critical to our consideration of a God who delights to dwell among his people. I, I didn't just talk about that at the beginning of service because it was just some sort of intro. We're still talking about God dwelling among us. And there's still this temptation for you and I to think that, okay, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the garden. That's Moses. That's the apostles who actually got to see Jesus. We're just waiting for him to come back. So, you know, what is our part in God dwelling among us? What does that look like today? And it's in the midst of this conversation that Jesus presents a truth that would revolutionize the way that these men would live for the rest of their lives here on earth. And I want you to understand that, this, that in this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he presents a truth that should revolutionize the way that you and I live the rest of our lives here on this earth. Note the next part of the promise in verse 15. And, and I want you to note that this part, of this, the part of this promise is essential. It's an essential element which we cannot live without if we are going to also do the works that Jesus did. And so here's his promise to them. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now let's just think through that. In order for us to do the works that Jesus did, and even do greater works than he did, and in order to fulfill his great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I mean, the command that Jesus gave us, go change the world. Right. Us, we're incapable of that. We're powerless to do that unless God's going with us. And so that's what he promises in order for us to do these works, in order for us to love Jesus and to love one another and to fulfill his commandments, we need something. We need a helper. And, and that's what he promises. And, and the words that he uses here are really particular. Um, there's, there's two Greek words that are, that are used throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. 
uh, two Greek words that mean another. English is horrible. We only get one word. Okay, but Greek is cool because it has two. And, and one of those words is, is alos, all right, alos. Uh, it just means, it means another of the same kind. The, the other word that the Greeks use and that Jesus uses often is heteros, uh, which means another but of a different kind. Let me illustrate that. Um, so our, our pet dies. My kids are crying. They're in anguish. They're just uncontrollable sobs. And so finally I break down and say, okay, guys, I'm going to buy heteros, another pet. And when I say heteros, that means another of a different kind. And so I go down to the pet store, and rather than bring home a cat, which just died, I bring home an, a, a, a hissing uh, Madagascan cockroach. <laughs> Not what they had in mind, right? It, it's a, another pet. I mean, we're going to put this thing on a leash and take it on walks, and you know, it's going to sit on the, the bedpost at night and watch them while they sleep. And That's gross. Horrible. Um, a pet of another kind. Not quite what they had in mind. Or let's, let's be a little bit nicer to the kids. Uh, rather than a cat, I bring home a dog. It's another pet, but it's another kind. It's not of the same kind. But if I were to use the word alos, and I told my kids, okay, the, the cat died, and so I'm going to bring home alos, another pet, they can expect what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to bring home another cat, another pet of the same kind. Do you see where that goes and how that works? And so Jesus uses one of those words here. He says, I'm going to send another helper to you. And he uses the word alos. Another helper like me. A helper of the same kind. And so when he promises the Holy Spirit, understand that what Jesus promises is that this one that's going to come and help them is going to be just like me. He promised that the Father would send another helper who would be like himself, just as Jesus had guided, guarded, taught, and led them, the other helper would also guide them in truth. We know who this helper is, right? The Holy Spirit. Now note one other thing here before we turn to the book of Acts. Note what the Holy Spirit, note that this Holy Spirit would, verse 16, be with you forever. And note this, this Holy Spirit, verse 17, dwells with you and will be in you have we noticed that phrase before uh, we've been doing that since genesis chapter 2 god dwelling with man jesus dwelling on earth taking on flesh and dwelling in our midst and now jesus promises i'm going to send somebody else to, i'm going to ask the father and the father is going to send someone else like me to help you and he will dwell with you and be not just with you not just in your tent. He's not just going to pitch a tent in your camp. He's going to be in you. Well, this is new. This is astonishing. Are, are you catching this language that he's using? This is the language of Moses visiting with God as one visits face to face. This is the language of the incarnation where the Son of God comes and, and dwelt among us. And now here Jesus not only promises that we will do the same works he did, but that we will know another helper who is like Jesus and who will once again dwell with us. But now, 
you as people of faith in the church age have the astounding privilege of participating in something that the Old Testament saints never would have even dreamed of. The Holy Spirit will be in you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if your faith has been put in Him and what He accomplished for you on the cross, He has given to you, somebody that's living 2,000 years after Jesus came, you've received something that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel would have just, their minds would have been blown that God would come to reside in you, in us. I don't have to go to Jerusalem to, to offer my prayers and my sacrifices. I don't have to go to the synagogue to, to hear God's word. God comes to dwell in us. And God the Spirit is with you and He will never forsake you. And He walks with the believer and He empowers the believer so that we can love Jesus, so that we can love one another, and so that we can obey His commandments and so that we can go into all the world and preach a message that we would be completely incapable of doing if we did not have this helper, the third person of the Trinity, who Jesus promises will be with you forever. We spent a bit of time in John 14 because I, I think oftentimes we approach the Lord's departure much like the disciples did in that conversation. We, we kind of ignore a lot of the conversations that Jesus has here. And, and we kind of focus on, I'm going away. All we hear is, I'm going away. I'm not going to be with you for a while. We often treat the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our midst as if it was some sort of consolation prize. Right? Don't we do that? God is in our midst. Know this. God is in our midst in a unique way, way that is that was unknown before throughout the Scripture in the way that He has done so. And He's working in ways that are new, that the Old Testament saints longed to look into and longed to understand. And the disciples were perplexed because uh, Jesus was going away and, that, and they would not be able to follow Him. But He tells them this is necessary for their sake because without it, they would not have been able to know the joy of God's presence living in each one of us who believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, we have a God who is committed to being among us. And my friends, it is spectacular. The book of Acts introduces the next chapter in the story and it displays the beginnings of the fulfillment of jesus's promises which we just looked at here in verses in john 13 and 14 the title of the book that we've given at, at some point in the past is uh the acts of the apostles and, and then we just call it short acts a lot of people are confused by that what, what in the world is acts it's short for acts of the apostles um but the book of Acts is actually the second volume of a two-part book, a two-part work. Uh, part one is what, what is the Gospel of Luke, and part two is Acts. Both were written by a physician, a Gentile named Luke, who is a partner in ministry and a friend of the Apostle Paul, accompanied him, accompanied him on many of his journeys 
throughout the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. Both books were written to the same individual, a man named Theophilus, and um, both books are an account of the things that have been accomplished among us. The Gospel of Luke could be entitled The Acts of Jesus, and the sequel could be more appropriately entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's a continuation of the same story. God with us. Jesus Christ with us and what he did while he was here and the Holy Spirit with us and what he did and started to do through the church. The apostles, the prophets, those early believers that have passed on the torch to us. And so chapter 1 gives an account of Jesus' resurrection, his teaching to the disciples. Because after the resurrection, he stayed with them for 40 days. You ever wonder how they learned some of the stuff that they did? And, and where they got some of the, you know, how, how, did, how did John make, you know, somebody asked me this week, uh, we were talking to men's discipleship group. How, how did John know uh, that the Satan had entered Judas? You know, I, I, you know I, I mentioned the easy answer to that is the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the book. But, but it may be that in that 40 days, Jesus had a lot of conversations about a lot of the things that they had been learning and, and they need, needed to learn. And, and a lot of the things that were told in Scripture may have been a result of many of those conversations that he had with them over that time. But uh, he stayed for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. Jesus went away, just as he had promised in the book of John. But then the disciples went back to Jerusalem to wait. What were they waiting for? This other helper. This one like Jesus that was going to come and be with them forever. And we're introduced to the events of the Pentecost with the opening of chapter 2, which starts out like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so those first followers of Jesus Christ received the other helper. They received the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised. And the Holy Spirit immediately started performing great signs, displaying who he is and that what is to follow is of God. On the day of Pentecost, the people were going out from there and they were speaking in many languages. And, and there's, there's people that are there for the feast. They've come from all over the Roman Empire. You've got people from Libya and from Egypt and, and, and the people are speaking Latin from Rome. And there's people from uh, all over the empire, Syrian, Aramaic. And, and as they're listening, here comes these disciples. And the disciples are speaking in languages that they had never learned before. But people coming from all over the Roman Empire going, hey, how, how do they know my language? I'm hearing my language across the street. And, and they're preaching a message it was a miracle. In verse 12, one of the questions that they asked was, what does this mean? It, it took them off guard, and they're trying to understand the significance of this incredible event in which people are speaking in all these tongues that they recognized because it was their language, but it was coming from the mouth of somebody who had never studied it. And so Peter stands up among them, and he starts speeding, speaking. Now, let's rewind a couple weeks back in their lives, and, and, and where do we see Peter? Let's think about that for a moment, because that's important here as we continue through this passage. Where was Peter? 
He's proclaiming to follow Jesus to the end, but then he denies Jesus three times. We see Peter hiding in an upper room with the other disciples after the crucifixion. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, Peter is the one who announces to the other disciples, I think it's John 21, that he's going to return to his old profession. He says, I'm going fishing. Now those are words of rejoicing and great wonder for Craig Jepson. I'm going fishing. (laughs) Yeah! That is not what Peter's talking about here. This is not a vacation retreat. What Peter is saying is, I'm done. It's a statement from a man who realizes his utter failure and he's giving up and he's going back to the only thing that he knows other than following Jesus. Going fishing. And so Peter stands up among them. Excuse me, it's, it's a statement from this man who's given up, but Jesus calls him back. If you read John 21, Jesus has this beautiful conversation with Peter. He pulls him aside. He calls him back to his role as a shepherd in the church. And now here at Pentecost, a few weeks later, Peter, along with every other follower of Jesus Christ, has been baptized by the Holy Spirit and put into the church. And Acts 2 is our first display of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. The people asked after seeing this first sign of the Holy Spirit, what what does this mean? And so Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. And it's a a sermon that he preaches to an audience of thousands, apparently. And just a few weeks earlier, Peter, who denied knowing Jesus when a servant girl called him out, is now proclaiming the good news to the very crowd, some of the very crowd that crucified Jesus. How did that happen? Peter in an upper room hiding, Peter denying Jesus, and now Peter boldly proclaiming to the people that killed his Savior. What kind of transformation took place in those days? How do you explain it? I don't think you can, except that this other helper had come and was now doing works like Jesus did, works greater than Jesus did. And it starts here. Throughout this sermon, He points them to several Old Testament passages and shows how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and how the coming of the Holy Spirit was promised. In fact, the the words that Peter spoke here, and you're going to see in several of these sermons throughout the book of Acts, the people went, these guys aren't trained. This isn't a trained rabbit. How are these guys doing this? And so he he, he speaks to them, and look at verse 29 and following, and, and just listen to how he ties the Old Testament to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Look at how he recollects Jesus' promise from John chapter 14 that we just looked at, and and then he leads them to the good news. Just just listen to his words. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to think that God walking in the garden. Think God visiting with Moses face to face. Think about Jesus in our presence dwelling among us, and now think about how the Holy Spirit dwells in Peter and us in you a follower of Jesus Christ, and what God is doing through him here. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this, to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. (laughs) Can you imagine? Bold. And then the audience responds. True repentance takes place. And thousands receive forgiveness of their sins. Verse 41 sums it all up, the whole section. And it states that about 3,000 souls were baptized and were added to the church. 3,000 souls about that received the Holy Spirit that day. Over the next few chapters, Luke gives an account of what the Holy Spirit accomplished through the apostles and the believers of the early church. The, The same disciples who were fleeing away from Jesus before the crucifixion are confronted by the same leaders who command them to stop speaking in Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 4, we're told how the disciples were arrested, they're incarcerated overnight, and, and then they're brought back before the exact same people who had condemned Jesus to death just a few weeks earlier. Again, listen to how Peter responds. Verse 5, chapter 4, it says, On the next day their, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the, the, the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? They're speaking of the healing uh, that just took place. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice that word, we've seen that already the first time about Peter, didn't it? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter said to them, rulers of the people of his, and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can you believe this is the same man? This is the same Peter who uttered a curse when he was accused of being a follower of Jesus? Luke masterfully continues to bring us back to the truth that it was the Holy Spirit who was leading these first followers of Jesus. He was empowering them to love Jesus, to love one another, and and to follow Jesus' commandments as they shared the gospel wherever they went. Even through great persecution, the church continued to grow. In Acts chapter 7, Luke walks the reader through another sermon preached by a disciple named Stephen. And, and how he was executed for preaching the gospel. And yet the Holy Spirit continued to empower believers for his work as he dwelt among them and resided in each one of them. Now, l- lest we leave here and, and somehow imagine that, that 
this was all just something that was experienced by the first followers of the church. Lest we imagine that this isn't for you and me. Lest we are tempted to think that the Holy Spirit dwelt among them in the time when the apostles and the prophets were laying a foundation for the church. Allow me to take us to one more passage. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I know that's a little bit beyond the scope of where we're at in the story. But Ephesians chapter 5. Because Paul's talking to the Ephesians, and, and this is a letter for us as well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a letter for you. The apostles and the prophets may be gone. That foundation has been laid, and the, the Scripture has been given to us so that we might be able to walk in it, obey it, to know the commands of our Lord. But the Holy Spirit has not left us. He's still empowering believers today. We need to understand that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ by repenting of their sin and coming to Him as the only one who can make peace with God, everyone who has believed on Jesus has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That, that means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have received the promised Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit means that you have received the Holy Spirit and he has put you into, baptized means to be immersed into something. He has immersed you into the church. You are part of the body of Christ. Happened the moment that you believed. Nobody can take that away from you. You can't take that away from you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happened with the moment you believed, and the same helper who empowered the first disciples now resides in you to empower you for the work of the ministry that God has called you to. We may not have been given a we have not been given a spirit of fear and an intimidation, but we have been given the Holy Spirit. And again, I want you to understand that God has come to dwell with you. And it is amazing. But Ephesians 5 commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same phrase that was used of Peter and many of the other first followers of Jesus Christ. He continues to tell them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? A, a few years ago, uh, we had a problem at, at our house. Um, it was the first winter that we were here. Uh, remember how cold 2013, 2014 was? I mean, it was cold. Um, I, I'm no Abby ice cream for this, but uh, I mean, it got so cold. Our house got cold. Uh, she just thought that was how Iowa was. But what really happened was I thought I was under contract with our propane company uh, and that they were going to come automatically fill our propane tank all the time, but I wasn't. And I thought I was under contract to have the same price that we moved here with, but I didn't get here early enough for that. And so um, they weren't filling my propane tank and we were using it up. And one cold Saturday night, I get a call from my wife. I said, um, the heater's blowing out cold air. The temperature's dropping. What do we do? <laughs> uh, I think it was like five minutes after closing. I called the propane company. They came out. Um, they filled the tank. A third full. I paid $1,000 for a third of a tank because the price had I, I was not under contract. So, we, okay, what do we do? So for the next few weeks, we made a decision that you know, we can't afford to keep on doing this. So we bought some space heaters. We heated a couple rooms of the house. We kind of all just stayed in the living room together all the time. 
and rooms were cold. We bundled up. We put some space heaters next to uh, each kid. And Abby, Abby thought, this is Iowa. Cool, this is what God's called us to. <laughs> um, kind of glad it's not the case, right? It was a cold winter. Um, here's the thing. Being baptized by the Holy Spirit is kind of like that. It's something that happens to you when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are tapped into the true source of power who can enable you to fulfill all that God has commanded you to do and to accomplish all that God has entrusted you with. But if you don't utilize that power, it's like trying to heat a whole house with a whole bunch of space heaters. It doesn't work, does it? It's pretty futile. In fact, it probably cost us more than the propane would have. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit is something that the Holy Spirit does when he puts you into the body and you are tapped into that resource. You have that power to accomplish what he has called you to do. The believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, however, who is continually submitting himself to the control of the Holy Spirit, results in a changed life, godly living, in a powerful display of the Spirit's work in you. And so if you will, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is having the propane tank. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is turning the thermostat on. Let's look at Ephesians 5.18 and see how the Scripture brings us to this definition. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Can you agree with that? Does that reflect our time? Yeah. And so we need to be careful how we walk. We need to be wise about how we walk. The days are evil, so we need to make the best use of the time that God has given to us. And then verse 17, he says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So first of all, understand that this has to do with how you walk as a Christian. This passage deals with how you are to walk in your relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And understand that this is clearly stated that this is God's will for your life. I hear people ask me all the time, what's God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What should I go to school? What should I do? What car should I buy? What's God's will for my life? I, I don't know all the answers to all those specific details, but I can tell you this. God's will for your life is clearly defined here. And Paul says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And then in verse 18, he says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So God gives us this contrast here in these verses, particularly in verse 18. And this verse is critical for understanding how all these things connect together. You, know, it, it, you look at this verse at first glance, and it kind of seems like Paul's just changing gears. You know, it's like, what? You know, what? What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about walking in wisdom, and then he's talking about getting drunk, and then he's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do all these things relate? Come on, Paul. Right? Anybody else think that, or is that just me? <laughs> just me, Leslie. <laughs> Thanks, Leslie. First, we remember that we are considering how to walk, how we live. Do you want to live 
obediently to your Lord? I hope so. Do you want to walk wisely? Do you want the power to do what you know is right and to accomplish Christ's commission in your life? Do you want to experience God dwelling with you and empowering you for His work? Then be filled with the Spirit. That's the key. And it's a command. It's something that can happen or not happen. You can be disobedient and not be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you can be obedient and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So let me ask you this. What happens when you are filled with wine? Not, not just a drink of wine, not just a, a beverage, but what happens when you become intoxicated or drunk with alcohol? <laughs> yeah. It controls your behavior, doesn't it? We read in the news all the time about people who have done horrible things because they were so intoxicated with wine that they were influenced to do things that they never would have done if they had been sober. They're just as responsible, though, for doing them, and those people are charged with crimes because they did do those horrible things, even if they claim the wine made me do it. But the point here in our passage is that being filled with something like wine means that it is controlling your behavior. He's not talking about being physically filled. He's talking about being controlled by it. So if being filled with the Holy Spirit is in contrast with being filled with wine, what happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit? In a similar fashion, He controls your behavior. Not, not in the sense that you are out of control, but, but that you are under His control. The command to be filled with the Holy Spirit refers to your walking by the Holy Spirit who empowers you so that you can live a life that pleases and honors your Savior, Jesus Christ. When you're filled with wine, the resulting behavior is dissipation, reckless abandon. But when you are filled with the Spirit, the resulting behavior is walking wisely. And I'd like to propose to you that being filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit is, who is working in and through you, even as you make decisions and choices, is very practical. It's not some magical formula here. In fact, there's a parallel passage from Ephesians chapter 5 that we find over in Colossians chapter 3. And we don't have time to go through both of those passages today. But he's talking about a similar kind of living to that which we see in Ephesians 5. And in, that verse, in verse 16, he writes this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And, and then the rest of the passage parallels what we read in Ephesians 5. And in other words, allow God's word to dominate your life. Allow God's word to define everything that you do, everything that you say. And, and, and this is his point. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that you and I are saturating our lives with the Word that the Holy Spirit gave to us. Every day, I, I need to be reading His Word, studying His Word, memorizing, and, and, and then obeying His Word. And obedience, the more I spend in His Word and, and am influenced by the Holy Spirit who wrote this book, 
then obedience is naturally going to become a characteristic of my life. Because the more I feed myself on God's Word, the more the Holy Spirit is going to use what my mind and my soul are dwelling on, and He will influence my behavior by the very words that He inspired. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is in tandem with being filled with the Word of God. Many of us are struggling with the Christian walk and struggling with fruitless and powerless ministry and disciple-making, not because you've received the Holy, not received the Holy Spirit yet. You've been baptized in, by the Holy Spirit as a believer in Jesus Christ, but many of us are struggling because we are not submitting ourselves to His authority. We are not spending time with Him and being influenced by the Holy Spirit. You haven't turned the thermostat up. Either we are not either taking we are either not taking the time to read and study his word, or we are not choosing to submit to what we find there. I'm a bit over my time today, so let me just close with this. I, I believe that we're living in times that are evil. Just like Paul and the Ephesians were. And days are going to grow worse. There are some of you in this room that in your lifetime. Uh, may be imprisoned because you follow Jesus Christ. It is plausible that some of you in this room may pay the price with your life. In our lifetime, in our country, uh, things are changing. And people are less and less tolerant. In a society that values tolerance, it is highly intolerant of Jesus Christ and the gospel. The things that the apostles faced in the book of Acts, my friends, you are going to face in various ways. It may not happen in 2023, but within our lifetimes, if the Lord tarries, there's going to be some decisions that you have to make. And my friends, in that process, we should delight. Don't be discouraged by it. Don't be despondent. Don't look at the circumstances around you and go, what do we do? Who do I vote for? This isn't about politics. I'm not saying don't be involved in politics and don't vote and those things. Those are important. But my friends, you are called not to change the world politically. You are, you are called to follow the Great Commission and to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's your mission. And he has given you a helper to help you accomplish that mission. And so we need to be going about doing that. And as you face opposition... Do it with joy because the Spirit who resides in you is like Jesus. And this journey is one that's filled with joy and peace. And we have the great opportunity to watch what it looks like when God continues to dwell in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have to teach us through these things. I, I pray that you'd help us to, again, understand more completely what it means to be filled with your spirit. Father, I don't just pray that people would understand the doctrine of it, the definitions, but I pray that my friends here would experience this. That as they are saturated with your word that the Holy Spirit has given to them, I, I pray that their lives would be so transformed because the Holy Spirit is permeating every area of their lives. 
And as they go out to work and to schools and, and their families, this region has changed because my friends here are filled with the Holy Spirit and realize the profound walk that we live, one which you dwell in our midst. So let us never despair that Jesus has not returned yet, though that is our hope, our blessed hope. Let us also remember that we have one like Jesus who is in us and will never leave us and will never forsake us.